Feel free to take a seat. My name is Caleb Thompson. If you guys don't know me, I'm one of the college ministry directors of Campus Fellowship, Walnut Creek Church's college ministry. Uh, I primarily work with Drake students, uh, and uh, I'm really excited to be able to be here and teach through this text with you guys here this morning. Uh, recently, I received a text message of a video of my now three-and-a-half-year-old Max about a year ago. She's like two-and-a-half years old. It's some, some girls within Campus Fellowship uh, throwing him wiffle balls. And before they start throwing wiffle balls to, to hit with the bat, he's got the bat over his shoulder. And you can hear everybody say, take a practice swing. Swing the bat, swing the bat, swing the bat, swing the bat. And his gears start turning. He's so confused. And nobody understands why he's confused, but they keep saying, Max, swing the bat. Take a practice swing. Take a practice swing. And he starts to inch over out of the shot, and the, the, the screen pans over, and there's a swing. And so Max puts the, the bat in the swing and starts to swing the bat. And the girl on the video is like, oh, swing the bat. He, he misunderstood their direction. He misrepresented their, their request. He had a different definition of swing, and the girls were using it, a different definition. And to, uh, this morning, we have one of Jesus' last attempts to correct the religious leader's misunderstanding of the role of the Messiah and who Jesus himself would be that he is the Messiah. And then he gives a warning for these hypocrites, these scribes that he's teaching, those who would worship God only externally, but their hearts be far from God. And a lot has happened over the last few weeks, so it might be helpful for us to recap. Right at the beginning of chapter 20, uh, the scribes and the chief priests, they start to question Jesus. By what authority do you have to preach about the things of God in our Jerusalem? Are you a revolutionary? Do you want to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They were trying to figure out who Jesus was. And in Luke 19, 47, it says that their hope was to destroy him. They wanted to kill him, and, and eventually they did kill him, but they couldn't just kill him in broad daylight. They wanted to expose to the people that he was not teaching the things of God. He was not from God. So Luke 20, 20, it says that they sent spies to catch him. These spies were the best thinkers. They were thinking of the best questions that would trip him up and make him answer in such a way that the people would say, not from God. You are, a, you, are a, you, are, you are not from God. And they couldn't do it. Last week, the passage ended with high tension where it says in verse 40, teachers, you have spoken well. And they dared to ask him anything. So they say to him, the, the scribes say, we can't, we can't trip you up. You have answered completely flawlessly. This is, the, this is the mortal combat equivalent of finish him. You know, they're up against the rope. They're dazed. Jesus, he just has to do his thing and, and communicate to them that he is the one that they've been waiting for. So what does he do? This is important. What does he do when he, he has his opponents that are trying to get him? What does he do when he has them up against the ropes? And it's kind of weird. He asks them a question. He asks them a question. Why, he asks them a question. Why would you ask a question? Wouldn't you just go after them? And it seems pretty anticlimactic, but it's not at all. And it's more of a riddle than a question, but 
he starts off in verse 41. He says, how can they say the Messiah is the son of David? Now, you got to think, what does their line of questioning have anything to do with Jesus' question right here? Well, their line of questioning, the subject was, was Jesus. They were trying to expose Jesus. So he says, if you guys are going to ask me questions about who I am, I'm going to ask you a question about who I am. So he asks them this question. He is the subject of his own question. How can they say the Messiah is the son of David? He's pointing right back at himself. So let's unpack Jesus' argument to understand it a little bit more. First, everyone knows in this culture, in this context, that the Messiah would be the son of David. Number two, David calls the Messiah my Lord. Number three, the Messiah cannot only be David's descendant, and therefore, number four, the Messiah is David's descendant and must also be God in the flesh. So let's start with number one. Everybody knows that the Messiah will be the, will be the son of David. This was a given for this crowd in, uh, in ancient Jerusalem. This is consistent with God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 16. It says... When your time comes, David, you, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you, uh, your, after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. So it's going to be an everlasting kingdom. And your throne will be established forever. Again, his throne is going to be, his rule and reign will be forever, this descendant. So his common knowledge that the Messiah was gonna be from the line of David. And Luke does a good job of making this obvious to the readers. Just a couple examples from, from Luke in, in his text, Luke 1, 27, he, he refers to Joseph as from the house of David. This is deliberate, okay? If Joseph is from the house of David, then Jesus, his son, is from the house of David. And, and the, Jesus was widely known as the son of David in Jerusalem, so much so that the blind beggar from Jericho identified Jesus as the son of David in Luke 18, meaning Jesus was pointing out to everybody, Luke was pointing out to everybody, Jesus is the son of David. So this brings us to our next point, David calls the Messiah my Lord. This is where Jesus opens up the argument. Verse 42, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, so scribes, I'm using your book right here. You guys know this. All the listeners, you guys know this argument from the book of Psalms. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a quote from Psalm 110, and the, this must have been very influential for the disciples because the writers of the New, the New Testament, this is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. So this is David in the spirit, and you can imagine him, him having a quiet time and thinking through of the promise of Melchizedek and thinking through this, this, uh, uh, this promise that God gave him about an everlasting rule, an everlasting reign, an everlasting king from one of his descendants and sitting down and starting to reason, okay, God, you're gonna send, you're gonna send someone else who is, who is greater than me. And the scribes knew that this passage was a messianic prophecy. 
Philip Ryken, a commentator, says, all of the ancient rabbis agreed that David was prophesying here about the Christ, about the Messiah. So look at verse 42. He says, the Lord declared to my Lord. Okay, the Lord, that first word is Yahweh. It was the, it was, it was the term that the Jews used for God Almighty. So David's saying, God Almighty says to whom? He says to Adonai. This is my Lord. This is a general term for Lord and Master. So this brings us to our next point. The Messiah cannot only be a descendant of David, otherwise David would never, ever call him my Lord. Why would he never do that? Because David was a king. And he wasn't just a king, he was the king. He was the king of Israel. There's no other greater king in Israel than David himself. And all the people listening, they knew that. They believed that. David was king. He had no other lords. He had no other people above him. Only God was above him. So he would never identify any human being, strictly human being, as Lord, much less any one of his descendants. He doesn't know his descendants. He wouldn't call any one of his descendants Lord unless he knew that this coming Messiah would be greater than him. And the only way that he could be greater than him is if he was God. So therefore, the Messiah is David's descendant and must also be God. Verse 44, so Jesus ends, he says, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? How can he be his son if he's calling him Lord? He's the greatest king that ever lived. He's much more than that. And of course, Jesus himself is the subject of this line of questioning. He's saying, I'm Lord. And the more and more I think about this passage, I, the more and more I realize that Jesus is the only one that understood his riddle. Because if they would have understood his riddle, the scribes and the Pharisees, they wanted to kill him anyway. He was putting himself on par with God himself. They would have picked up stones to stone him right then and there. If the disciples would have understood that Jesus, he was God in the flesh, after Jesus' death, they would have had more faith. After his death, they wouldn't have hid themselves in a locked room, as it says in John 21, John 21 for fear of the Jews, because the Jews were going to kill them. If they would have understood what, what Jesus was saying. Okay, so now John, the apostle John in Revelation twenty two sixteen, as Jesus resurrects from the grave, and shows himself to all his disciples and preaches for 40 days and then ascends to heaven to the right hand of the Father. This is what John says as he knows. He's like, okay, <laughs> I get it. This makes sense. Back from this prophecy in, in 2 Samuel 7, he's thinking about this, Revelation twenty two sixteen. 16. He's quoting Jesus. He sa Jesus says, I, Jesus, am the root of and the descendant of David. He's resolving his riddle right there. I'm it. I'm it. And John knows it. John knows it. John understands it. He's communicating this. He says, I'm, I'm the one whom David came from. I'm the creator. I'm also the one who will reign in the line of David. So how do we apply this text to our lives today? Well, we have a flesh that tends towards self-justification and doing the things that we want to do. 
We have a world that hates the things of God and wants us to worship the creation rather than the creator. And we have a great deceiver in Satan who uses those two things, our flesh and our culture, our world, to cloud our judgment toward the mishandling and the misapplication of the word of God. Again, Jesus uses their own text to show that he has been communicating that a Messiah was going to come and he was going to be God from the very beginning. And they, they couldn't understand it. So as a church, whether in community groups or the context of friendships with other Christians, we should often communicate to one another what God is teaching us in his word. And he's always teaching us things. What are we learning from God's word? And we should share them with our friends. We should share them with, with people in our community group. We should share them with other Christians that we're walking our Christian life right alongside. And we should share how we're applying God's word. How we're coming to conclusions about the decisions that, that, that we're making that are based on the principles of God's word because God's word leads to life. And we need to give opportunity for correction to ensure that our conclusions and our applications of the word of God align with Jesus' argument right here. That he is God in the flesh. That he is the root and the descendant of David. And that he has all authority in his resurrection and ascension and in sitting down at the right hand of the Father. He has all authority over the life of the Christian. And that we should come in line with his, his authority. Why? for our good and for God's glory. So that's Jesus' argument. He's the Messiah. He's the one that's going to come to take away the sins of the world. Okay, let's move on. He moves on to a warning. He gives a warning for his disciples. He gives a warning for the people listening. What's his warning? Verse 45 through 47. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the place of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers for show. These will receive a harsher judgment. Okay, so what is he bewaring them of? What does he want them to be to beware of? He's not, he does not want them to beware of the physical harm that may come from turning their backs on the scribes. That the scribes are going to kill you. He's not warning them about that. He's warning them like uh, of their hypocrisy. He's warning them like a parent warns their kid to not hang out with this person or that person because their influence is toxic. He's warning them that bad company corrupts good character. Don't don't be like the Pharisees. Beware of their hypocrisy. And Jesus doesn't use the word hypocrite, but that's exactly what he's getting at. He says, beware of their show. Beware of their show. That's what a hypocrite does. What is a hypocrite? The word hypocrite originates from Greek dramas or plays. It's someone who was wearing a mask or playing a role in the play. They didn't have enough actors at some points in time to play all the characters. So the way that they would denote the different actors that they were playing is that they would wear a mask. They would go out on stage for this part, for this, pers for, for this part that they're playing with a certain mask. They would go back, they would get another mask if they were going to be playing a different mask. And these 
actors, they were called hypocrites. That, that's what the, the word came to mean, was actor. Does anyone out there know who Dawson Gurley is? Dawson Gurley? Uh, he came to fame about a month ago. He's known as Fake Clay Thompson. You guys can show this. Clay Thompson. On the left, he is uh, an actual real-life person who plays for the Golden State Warriors. He's a really good basketball player. He's a shooting guard for the Golden State Warriors. And on the right, that is fake Clay Thompson. His name is Dawson Gurley. And he came to fame because during the NBA Finals this year, he dressed up as Clay Thompson, and he... Uh, during the NBA Finals, during a game at the Chase Center, okay, during, during that day, earlier in the day, he gets into the garage, gets past security as Clay Thompson, okay? And then he gets through more security all the way through the tunnels and finds his way, and this is him on the right, finds his way into the empty stadium before shoot-around time, even starts as fake Clay Thompson, security guards all around, and shoots... As fake Clay Thompson, he shoots around for 10 minutes. <laughs> and I don't know exactly know how he got found out, but I imagine it had something to do with his shooting percentage. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that this is awesome, <laughs> that he was able to do this. Uh, but he's a hypocrite. He was playing the role of someone that he wasn't. Recently, Clay Thompson actually broke the silence about this whole situation say, saying, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Fake Clay Thompson got banned for life from the Chase Center where the Golden State Warriors play. But I say it's totally worth it. <laughs> so how were the scribes hypocrites? What was their show? What game were they playing? Well, their game, their religious action, they looked great on the outside, but it was all about self-worship rather than the worship of God. They were doing all the right things, but they were motivated by the wickedness of their hearts, by the praise of people, by people loving them, by money. Now, obviously, God cares incredibly about our external action, but when Jesus speaks into environments like this one, our church, or when Jesus speaks into environments like the passage we're going through where he's speaking in front of religious people, people that generally obey God's word externally, his warning to those people is to examine their heart heart posture, to ask themselves, why? Why do you do what you do? Why are you trying to obey God? Why are you trying to follow Christ? I mean, look at what Jesus calls out. Is it really that bad on the outside? They go around in long, fancy clothes. Is Is it okay to wear nice clothes? They love greetings in the marketplaces. I love saying hi to some of you guys this morning. This isn't a marketplace, but that's not the point. They say long prayers. They like places of honor at the banquet. It's not bad to like those things. Okay, they devour widows' houses. That's, that one's wicked. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, Jesus calls it like he sees it. What, what were they actually doing with these widows? They would become widows and just righteous men who just wanted to help serve and bless the community. Hey, let me take care of your finances. Let me help you, give you some counsel, and get your fares in order. 
And then after, after the fact, after they would help them and counsel them and care for them, they would, they would charge them extortionary rates for their services and say it's the work of the Lord. And in that sense, they would devour the widow's houses. They wouldn't be able to support themselves after they're taking these extortionary rates. So it was way more insidious than that. It, it had the pretense of, I just want to help you. I just want to love you. I just want to serve you. This is a work of the Lord. So what is so bad about their action? All of the religious action, their service, their worship, it was motivated by their desire to acquire wealth, to acquire status, for people to love them, for people to bless them, to people, for people to just want to be around them because they're so awesome. And it can't get lost on us who Jesus is looking at. Who is he actually warning? Verse 45, while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples. He turns to his disciples, the people who wanted to follow him, the people that wanted to be faithful to him. Why does he turn to his disciples? Because Jesus knows that when you get into that sort of religion, religious environment where you are going to bless and serve people, it's going to be easy for people to start to love you. And they're going to be susceptible to people-pleasing, self-glorifying, comfort-pursuing this show that the, that the Pharisees, that the scribes were all about. So how do we know that they're susceptible to hypocrisy? Because none of us has a friend named Judas. Because in 33 AD, at the top of the baby book name list was Judas. In 34 AD, Judas is no longer on the list. Because Judas was a total and complete hypocrite. Complaining about the woman who pours her expensive perfume on Jesus. Couldn't we have sold that and made more money? in the back of his mind saying, so I can skim some off the top. That's how we know that the disciples are susceptible to the same type of hypocrisy. And this is a principle that we need to lodge deep down into our soul, is that we tend as people toward self-worship. We tend toward taking care of good old number one. That's what we tend toward. Martin Luther had a saying, it translated in, uh, to English, man curved in on himself. And the concept that he was trying to convey is that if we give humans enough time, and it doesn't actually take that, all that much time, if we give humans enough time, they will always tend towards self-worship in their worship of God. And you think about it. Think about the things that God calls us to do as Christians in Christian worship. Where you love one another, you bless one another, you serve one another. You meet those who have needs. You share the gospel and take a vested interest into someone's life who, who you don't have actually any responsibility in the world. And you lead them in truth, in the gospel, and you're patient with them trying to encourage them to walk in the Lord. And over the course of time, as you serve God and obey God, doesn't a certain type of reputation develop where people, they just enjoy your company? 
They know that you're not, they, they, they know that when you're around, you're gonna love them, you're gonna serve them. And think about the disciples in their worship. When, when, when the gospel was flooding over the earth and people were becoming Christians and being indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and they were kind of the face of this whole thing, and they were resurrecting people from the dead, and they were healing the sick, and they were healing the blind. You could imagine how in that situation, people loved them, and how it could have been so easy for them for their motivation at the core, when they wake up in the morning, for them to say, you know, this is really hard. But I'm experience, experiencing a lot of fame from this. I love that people love me. This is awesome. And how their motivation to walk in faith through the day was not God. It was themselves. <clears throat> We are bound toward hypocrisy in our sin nature because we are curved in on ourselves. And it's as if Jesus is looking at them square in the eye and saying, why are you following me? Disciples, why are you following me? Is it for me? Is it because you believe in me? Or is it because you believe there's going to be great fame that comes along with following me? And if the disciples are susceptible to hypocrisy, then so are we. So I ask the same of you guys this morning. Why are you here? Why did you come here this morning? Did you come here to worship God? Or did you come here to project an image of worshiping God to everybody else? Why do you faithfully read the word of God? Is it so you can check it off the list because it makes you feel better about yourself or you can tell somebody about your devotions or is it because you love the gospel? You love the fact that you cannot save yourself, you need a savior. And this is how getting in the word of God is how you come close to your savior. And those of us that are at greatest risk of creating patterns in our, lives, in our lives of religious practice devoid of actually worshiping God are not those who have been Christians for four seconds. Everybody who's been a Christian for four seconds, they know that they're a mess. That's why they came to Christ. It's those, it's those of us who are pastors. It's those of us who are community group leaders and Bible study leaders. It's anyone in any sort of recognized leadership role in the church or any sort of recognized leadership role where as a Christian you're serving and blessing people. It's those of you who have been going to church for two years or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years and you've been a faithful member of a church for 70 years. Since the day that you were born, you were in the church. It's those people. It's us. We are the ones that are most susceptible that have been following Christ for the longest we're most susceptible to doing all of our worship externally and none internally. There's a positive correlation between the amount of time trying to walk with the Lord and our susceptibility to hypocrisy. And so if you're anything like me, you struggle immensely 
immensely with hypocrisy. You oscillate between faithful worship of God and self-worship that looks like faithful worship to God. So if you're here, what do you do? If this is you, what do you do? And it probably is because a lot of you have been going to church for a long period of time. What do you do? You've got to argue with your soul. It's, it's no coincidence that this passage where Jesus is arguing with these people, his greatest argument, I'm the Messiah, it's no coincidence that it's right next to this warning to his disciples. So we argue. What do we do? We argue with our soul that the, the way that Jesus argued with the scribes, how then can he be his son? Jesus was not just the son of David. He is God incarnate, the Messiah, the one who came to take away the sins of, wor- of the world. If you're not a believer, you turn to Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But what about us that have been walking with God for a while? We're deep into our hypocrisy. We've been doing it for 30 years. We might as well just go ahead and do it for 30 more years. What do we do? And Paul struggled with this immensely as well. Why do you think he said to Timothy in 62 AD at the end of his life, I, Paul, am the chief of all sinners? Do you think that his external life was less clean at the end of his life than when he was killing Christians? I don't think so. I think that Paul himself, at the end of his life, was struggling immensely with hypocrisy. I think that's why he continues on in Romans 5.10. Two verses after proclaiming to the the non-believer, you are in Christ, your sins can be forgiven because of what Christ has done, though you are an enemy of Christ. You can be, Christ died for your sins. He he argues two verses later for the Christian, for himself. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? This is what he was aiming at. He was aiming at the hypocrite. He was aiming at his own life. I can do all things externally for God, but internally I really struggle as to whether or not I'm worshiping God or I'm worshiping myself. If God reached out to the sinner while he was still an enemy, why do we imagine as Christians in our hypocrisy Why do we imagine as Christians in our sin that God gives us the stiff arm? He gives us the cold shoulder. That is not biblical. That is not what God teaches. God draws nearer to the Christian that's in sin, that's in hypocrisy. He does not give us the stiff arm. Parents. If you're not a parent, ask someone who's a parent. Dads, when do you feel most like a dad? Moms, when do you feel most like a mom? Is it when your kids are playing nicely? Is it when they're obedient? Is it when they're healthy? Of course we draw near to our children when things are going well. But near still and deeper still do we get to our children when they're disobedient, when they're sick, when they're in trouble, 
when they're having a hard time in life. Last year, Max, he had hand, foot, and mouth. And if you don't know what hand, foot, and mouth is, it's basically sores all over your mouth, like strep throat all over your mouth. Extremely painful. Uh, Sores on the hands and sores on the feet. For three or four days, Max can't swallow. He can't eat anything. He can't drink anything. He can't use his pacifier, which is a big deal for my son. He was in pain. And me as a father, I did not get away from him. Because I love him. I drew near to him in his time of deepest need. I drew near to him. That's when we feel most like parents. And if I, an imperfect father, draw near to my son in time of greatest need, God does so perfectly. And when is our greatest time of need? It's when the Christian is in sin. And that's when he draws near to us. Near still to us is when we are in sin. Romans 6 says it this way, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The deeper that we are in sin, the deeper that God arms reaches out to pull us out. So are you walking in sin? Are you walking in hypocrisy this morning? Are you here for the praise of people? You must dispel the myth, the misbelief, the misapplication of scripture that God rejects the Christian walking in sin. He does not. He draws near. He draws near to us in our sin. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? How much deeper still will he reach into our lives to draw us out of our sin? Go to the cross. Go to the cross. Argue with your souls the way that Jesus argued with the disciples and with the scribes. How then can he just be a son? He's not. He's Savior. It's been said that God draws straight with crooked lines. And praise be to God that as we oscillate between faithfulness and hypocrisy, that by the blood of Christ, God can draw straight with crooked lines and continue to conform us as Christians to the image of his son. Pray with me. God, what a powerful truth. You don't stiff arm us in our sin. You draw near to us. Even in our hypocrisy, God, you are good, so good to us. I pray that this, that this was hit us deeply this morning. Give these things to you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.